You're listening to The Leader's Table, a podcast by Leadership for Educational Equity. Hi, Cindy. Hey, Taylor. Long time no see. And hello to all you civic leaders out there listening. Yes, hello, everyone. It's been a minute since we've had some time for a conversation at The Leader's Table, but we're back now. That's right. We're now firmly in 2021, and things are starting to move along after a bit of a bumpy beginning. Well, that's a very nice way to put it, Cindy. Now, Taylor, something interesting to know is that when today's conversation with Marvin Figueroa was recorded just a few weeks ago, he was the Deputy Secretary of Health and Human Resources in Virginia. Oh, nice. Very impressive. But then he was offered a role with the new presidential administration as the director of the Office of Intergovernmental and External Affairs at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Well, that's even more impressive. Did he take it? Of course he did. Okay, Marvin got an upgrade. Nice work. Marvin's also got a whole host of other accomplishments under his belt that you'll hear from Jason later on, but in a nutshell, he's made a career of making sure that quality and affordable social services are available to people in need. In this conversation, he offers some insights on what it means to be a leader working in government and discusses many of the complexities that come with a job. Let's get started then. Pull up a seat, everyone. Here's Jason Lorenz at the Leader's Table with Marvin Figueroa. Deputy Secretary Marvin Figueroa, thanks for joining the Leader's Table. Thanks for having me. It's been a while. It has been a little bit. Uh, you've been busy. Um, when I think about the places you've been, um, Senate staffer, Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute Leadership Fellow, um, Harvard man, Deputy Secretary for Health and Human Services for the Commonwealth of Virginia during the midst of a global pandemic. What is driving your days these days and how are you holding it all together? Uh, you know, it's interesting when, when you say it out loud, I'm like, whoa, um, it's been a journey. You know, I think for me, um, I entered public service because, um, you know, even with all the accolades and all the positions, I'm just this kid from the Bronx, right? Um, Honduran kid from the Bronx is what I like to say. Uh, immigrated here when I was five with my mom, went to the Bronx. She was a home health aide. I went to Title I schools, and I just remember throughout my childhood just being at, always asking the question, why? Why are things this way? Um, and it was always someone else that dictated why things were that way in my community. Um, I don't want to say that I wanted to be in public policy from the beginning, right? That's romanticizing the process, but it is that. It is trying to, to represent those folks who find themselves in the positions that I used to be in um, and hoping that I could lend a voice to, to, to their concerns um, and in some small way address address their issues. And so that's what drives me right now, right? It's like making sure that, especially during this pandemic, where we're seeing black and brown people um, be disproportionately affected, um, when the, the faces of those who are passing away look like mine, um, I wanna make sure that we are addressing their concerns um, and doing our best uh, to have a, a response that is, that is rooted in equity. Yeah, but what prepared you to leap so far and to lead in what must feel like a, a really uncertain time. I mean, I can't imagine that you walked into your job thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm going to face all that you faced over the last year. Uh, yeah, that's, a, that's a tough question. I think I have, I mean, I'm a person that admits when they don't know, right? I think 
that that humility is 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 important. Um, relying on smart people, right, who have done this for a while, um, using my expertise. And so looking at my background and looking at the work that I've done and looking at my academic preparation as an asset um, that could contribute to bringing things together um, has helped, I think, resiliency. I think if you're from the Bronx, um, if you're from an immigrant community, you got to be resilient. I mean, that's that's the way that we survive in places where, we, where we've grown up. Um, I think it's also about understanding that this, you know, a man of faith, understanding that this is much bigger than you. Um, there are days that you come in and I'm like, man, what the heck, right? And um, just knowing that I'm here for a purpose kind of helps realign myself uh, because there's no such thing as a day that goes perfectly planned here. Um, and that's in general. Add a, a pandemic that is con our understanding of how it transmits, impact on the body, uh, our resources to address it constantly is evolving, um, that you then you have to have something that you root yourself in or, or, you'll, or you'll be lost or you'll be discouraged. And so I think those those that combination of those things has allowed me to to kind of still kind of push push forward and in, in what it is, you know, really difficult days. And, and this is and we are going through more difficult days uh, now than we did before. When you um wake up in the morning and you're preparing for your your morning meeting with the governor or or when you're on the in the senate you'd have to think about you know how do i advance an agenda here this morning what were the things that you brought to that preparation or that practice in the morning just to be able to go and do that and feel like you you are not only feel like you're doing it well but you're you're advancing toward a kind of a personal compass uh, there is you know, there, there's this misperception that you can, you just hit the home run. Um, and that's, and I kind of disabuse that belief. And for me on a day-to-day -day basis is about chipping away. So it's thinking about what is a project, right? So we're thinking about advancing an agenda. You don't get, you got to first like, um, not right size, but ca appropriate calibrate the timeline. I, I mean, I, I like this this book by Grant Cardone is like 10 X. And it just says that, you know, when it comes to things that you want to do is always 10 times harder than you think it actually is. And so it is breaking it into its component parts. And then is how do you, how do you make sure that every day, even in some days that you're unmotivated, cause you can't just do work the days that you're motivated and you're not motivated every day. Um, you are, you are chipping away at that goal and you're doing something to, to get you to that goal. And so, regardless if it's in the Senate or is now with the governor, um, it is it is about appropriately thinking through a timeline and then being methodical. Um, and also have thinking about, look, there are some days that you're really gonna do max effort and there's some days that you're not, but so, every day you should be doing something. Mm. And it's having those things available to you so you can push through. Mm. So we grew up in different boroughs, but we grew up in a New York City that was uh, at the same time, uh, time and its evolution. Um, tell me a little bit about what it was like growing up in the Bronx in your Andoreño household and what that, how that prepared you for leadership. What did you learn and learn in, in, at home and in the Bronx? Oh man. I mean, the Bronx of the, the 1990s was, was, it was incredible. I mean, I think my, my father's memories is, you know, hanging out in the corner with the neighbors and la, por, la pompa abierta, right? Like, like the fire hydrant is open, 
bachata is blasting. People are looking through the fire escape, uh, telling you to come home and eat and eat almuerzo. Um, and that was the Bronx, man. I think it, it, you know, and looking back, I think it was about family. Um, it was about culture. Um, so we were, we were deeply um, grounded in our Latinidad, right? Um, I think we, we didn't know the, situa the economic situation we were in. We were just from the Bronx. Um, and I also think it's about looking out for each other. I think people misperceive the neighborhood as a place where um, there's competition and it's dangerous. But in reality, like my neighbors from, from 4F are like family to me. Um, and we look out for each other. They're Dominican, I'm Honduras, but they're my sister's godparents, for example, right? And so I think growing up there, um, you learned that what you have is the people that you started with um, and that you have to look out for each other because no one else is going to look out for each other. You also learn a lot about uh, the need to not forget where you come from, right? Which, again, is that, and I keep coming back to grounded and rooted and centered, but that's what, that's what I'm grounded, rooted, and centered in, right? Is like that that experience. Um, and, you know, regardless of where I go, I know that that's where I'm from and, and that there's people who are counting on me, but also view me as just that kid from 5C. Um, and so that has kind of helped me, kind of liberated me to some extent to, to kind of speak and advocate for, for those who um, may not be, may not have an opportunity to be in these spaces. Mm. From an identity perspective, a lot of folks that don't, may not know a lot about Garifuna culture, can you talk a little bit about that, Garifuna, the, the history of Garifuna, the Garifuna people in Honduras and then being Honoreño in New York in a very Caribbean milieu? How did that form you? Well, it, it, it's, it's interesting. I mean, um, in Honduras, I'm Garifuna. Um, in the Bronx, I'm Latino. Um, when I go to D.C., well, when I go to Vanderbilt, I'm African-American. Um, and when I go, you know, when I go to D.C., I'm from New York, right? It, it's kind of interesting how your identity almost, well, what you what folks choose to see about your identity uh, changes depending on the location and the space. Um, Garifuna is kind of an ethnic tribe, ethnic group. Um, you can find us in Honduras, Guatemala, and uh, Belize, and El Salvador. And you know, those are Black Caribs, and we have our own language. We speak Garifuna. We have our own culture. Um, for a long time, we had our um, own religious practices, which you know they're still they're still alive. But you know, as some of our older generations transition, um, they're not as prominent. But we 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 had those 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 religious those religious beliefs um, that were clearly African. Um, and you know, for me, Garifuna is. I mean, these folks were expelled from the Dominican Republic. They were forced. Um, out of out of some of their homelands, they mix with the folks of St. Vincent. Like these are people that like have figured it out throughout the whole history of uh, their whole history how to how to survive, right? And and in every country you can find us in the coast because that's where we um, settle because that's how we survive. We survive from the ocean. We survive from from ganados, right? So th that is again they always have figured it out, um, and and. To know that history and to be part of that culture, I think for me is is a, is a source of strength. And what did your communities teach you that that you bring every day to your struggle for equity? Like your you have worked across education, health. Um, I think it, I mean, and I, I can't imagine a more important time to be doing the work that you're doing today 
uh, for the Commonwealth. Uh, but what do you, what what do your experiences bring to you in that in that fight? Like, how do you how does that influence your your decision making? I just know that there's a broader story than the one that is told. Um, you know, my folks, my mom was a home health aide. Um, she was a teacher in the Bronx, in the Honduras, excuse me. But when she came to the U.S., her credential didn't transfer. Um, she worked hard, but because of of the, the lack of American education, she was unable to to earn a, a living wage. Right? Like if you know anything about home health aides, they don't make sufficient amount of funds to of money to to be able to sustain a household. Um, my mom was on. We were on SNAP. We we had a housing voucher. We were on Medicaid. We went to Title One schools. I was on Pell Grants. So, and that's just my mom, right? And I could just talk to you about my uncle, who was a custodial worker in a building in the the building next to us in the Bronx, um, or the, the aunts that I have that they're housekeepers. So I know that when I walk in here, um, those are the people that we should be fighting for because they, they, they don't have the lobbyists. They don't have the influence. Sometimes because of where we're from, we also don't want to engage politics. And so it is because in our country's politics functions differently. And so, when I, when I, again, right, when I come in here, it's those people, those are the folks that I try to keep in the forefront of my, of, of, of the policy, because you want to make sure that we're treating people with Medicaid with dignity. You want to make sure that we're improving Title I schools, um, that those children are not necessarily underperforming in some instances, but school is not their only job sometimes. And job, not in terms of earning a living somewhere else, but they're also caretakers for their siblings. They're also having to deal with what's happening in, in their environment. They're coming with a tremendous amount of trauma. And so it's like that experience, having lived through it, but also having seen it, allows me to say, well, you know, it's the tweaks that you have to make to policy. It's the framing of the policy changes when you come, when you come from that vantage point. Now you went from um, legislative director, I believe, policy director for, for the governor, um, and then became deputy secretary for, uh, for health and human services. What was that transition like? Like, how do you even uh, know that you want to make that transition? And then how do you how do you build in what you need to be successful in a second role during a, a governor's trans, um, administration? Well, interesting enough, I started as deputy secretary. So when I came in with the governor um, in 2018, I started as deputy secretary, working primarily on Medicaid and behavioral health. We were able to expand Medicaid. Um, we were also able to do a lot of different things to make uh, mental health services more widely available, especially community-based supports. Then I became legislative director. So the governor tapped me and he said, hey, I, you know, we just won the majority and I want you to, to help me lead, um, usher my agenda through the legislature. And then um, we got our first case of COVID-19, March 7th. And the governor asked me to go back to health and human services and not only use what I learned as legislative director, which is how to interact with legislators, mayors, and the congressional delegation, but now also take what I know about health to help not only work on the policy, but also frame the policy so it, it becomes law. Um, and also use those relationships to make government work. I, I'm convinced that government on its nature, by, by its very nature works, right? It functions a certain way, but you have to bend it up to a certain direction um, so that you can use whatever people's or because government is people um 
time to to move them in a in a, in a particular agenda that, in a direction with a particular agenda. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a long way of saying that I think you don't. I didn't know what I was going to get from being legislative director. I didn't want to do legislative director to be honest, um, but I'm glad I did it because it kind of showed me again like here's how the legislative works. That's what I got from working in the Senate. Um, here's how the legislative works from the executives. Um, vantage point and here as a secretary works with all those three things to to, to kind of create a, a, a more whole picture so you just never know what you're going to get when from these different positions and how it all kind of makes sense moving forward mm. what's the most important thing you've learned over the last year um that is all people um this is all people you know government is not a a machine it is people that go back home it's people that come with opinions it is it is people right and so your ability to and it's systems don't get me wrong but at the end of the day it boils down to people um and people want to be seen people want to be heard people want to be understood and if you understand that then you're able to to kind of work on policy there's, there's amorphous thing called policy um but again it, you don't you can't forget that it's, that it's people mm. If you were to name a thing that has changed about you, your leadership style, um, the way that you approach the, this problem of people and government um, through all of your experiences, what would you point to? Well, I think that understanding that it is people is a big deal um, because you got to know when to push and when to pull. And you really have to understand what motivates people, what motivates systems to change. Um, and again, it's one of the same, right? I think if you influence the influence makers, then you're able to influence that system, even if it may take a while to change the system. You can start bending it towards a particular direction, and, and you can see that at any agency that that, that we work with, um, you know, we're moving more progressive after decades of a conservative uh, tilt in in, in uh, Virginia government. Um, I also think in the same line of it's about people um, learning when not to take credit. Um, again, that's whole that's the whole thing about seeing. Uh, allowing yourself to see other people. Um, I think when you're early on in your career, you know, you want to, you want to be the star and, and believe me, I still want some of the attention, but it is, how do you share that attention? Right? Because you want to validate people's work. And you, again, you want to make sure that they feel invested in the enterprise so they can continue giving their best, even though they have families and they have all this other stuff, all these important things in their, in their mind. Um, making sure that they're valued in the workplace is really important. So I think over the course of this year, I just learned that again, making sure that I never lose track that these are human beings and, and they're people with, with beliefs, with fears, with love, with humility, with concerns, with vulnerability, um, has allowed me to become a better leader, I think. Mm. We hear a lot of leaders here talk about failure and, and learning, failing fast, learning fast. Um, what are some of your favorite failures that have taught you the most um i mean that's that's a that's a great question because we 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 don't talk about failure and i think we're conditioned not to take risks that will allow us to fail uh don't take that hard class because you might get a c right and that might hurt your gpa um or you know don't don't go too far and and there, there is some there is something to be said about moderation of course um but i think sometimes we play it too safe i think that you know in terms of my failures, they've been in large part during that transition period where you're not necessarily adding value to the enterprise, right? You're just trying not, you're just trying to to break even to some extent. 
So mine is, I mean, we had a Medicaid expansion uh, work group here that I chaired, the secretary point, um, appointed me to chair it. And I remember that I tried to control every part of the process and didn't necessarily trust my teammates. Or I wouldn't say trust, but I just felt like I had to sign off on a lot of the things. And I remember there was this one particular um, to do that the agency did it and they were waiting on me to approve it. And I never got around to it because I was doing other things. Um, and, you know, we got a bad, bad story and we delayed implementation of a particular component of, of the system change that we needed to do. And it was my, it was because of me. And I think in a Senate, it is you and your, your legislative aide. Here, I'm leading a group of, of career staffers. And I think I just learned that, look, you have to trust. I mean, I think the, the role of leader is not to sign off on everything, but just provide good instruction to, to those who you're leading and then trust them to, to then lead themselves. Um, and I think that, again, that, that kind of helped me um, understand what my role was and wasn't. Mm. Such a powerful lesson. And it feel powerful at the moment though. Things <laughs> were like, oh man. So like, I think we should also get, you know, get constructive discomfort is what I call it. I, you know, mm. I, I don't wanna, I don't think people just think that failing is fun. Um, it, it does hurt. And you do for a while, like, you know, you don't, it's not fast. Like you, you fail and you're like, you're in it for a little bit. Um, but I think, you know, I think as Michael Jordan talks about, so it's about the next shot, right? Um, but you're still thinking a little bit about that last shot. And so I don't want to pretend like you could just brush it off. You just have to like uh, push through it. Let's, let's dive into that a little bit. So you're, you're sitting in it, like, you know, like, God, if I had done X, differently yeah. this would have went differently right um what's your process of of understanding and then making sure that you capture the lesson the learning and and changing practice for the future well at the moment is well how do i what did i well, you, you already know what you did wrong um or didn't do right is the way that i like to frame it and you know you have to the, it's about the next right step so i my 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 getting out of it is well what do we do next and where we were able, it wasn't like a major hurdle to success there. It was like, okay, I, I this didn't happen. Here's what we need to do, um, and we can address it. So it was it wasn't detrimental to the project. Um, but fixing it is very important, right? Being honest about what went wrong is is also important. Like people can't help you if they don't know it's a problem. Um, and but then I came back later on, right? So I think I came back. I like to reflect on Sundays um, at the mass. Um, and so then I, I thought about what I, what I could have done, why, you know, me thinking that I had to be the authority figure in everything is a symptom of something bigger. Uh, it's not necessarily the root cause. And so it was asking myself, so why did you do that? And asking yourself the why consistently until I got to the, to the, to the root of the why, which was, I didn't know what the, I didn't know what the agency did per se, or I know what that person did, or I know enough about that person to trust them. And so I took the time to then, work um to understand better that that division within the agency and also that person then now i'm much more like all right i know that she will do a good job or he will do a good job um and that allowed me to let go a little bit more. Mm. letting go the leaders uh the leaders toolkit right yeah letting go it's real i want to ask you a few uh some questions about um kind of bigger societal stuff you are leading in virginia synonymous with the founding of the country 1619 project um 
we are in a racial reckoning in this country. What are the things that you bring to that conversation or what have you seen in all of the places that you, that you have uniquely walked that you wish that others understood? Uh, for, you know, this has been, a, I think it's important just to, to just say this, right? That it is tough for me too. That for a long time, I think, when I, especially in my Senate career, I wanted to be the person who was a healthcare staffer who happened to be black or happened to be Latino. I never wanted to be the black or Latino healthcare staffer. Um, and then over time, you realize that there's no distinction, that when I walk into the room, you see a black man um, or you, you see a Latino, you know, depending on, your, we could talk about what people perceive Latino these days uh, or historically. Um, but I have always understood that my identity, and when I walk into the room, I have a presence that like people notice because those rooms are don't look like me. Um, and I and I and I for a long time I think I've I've shied away from that, right? Like that I've not necessarily hid the Bronx, but I never I didn't lead into my identity. I just wanted to be just like everyone else in that room. Right? Because there are some connotations that go with, with being of this color, of being of this background, that you want to be like, no, I am, a, you know, I am deserve to be here just like anyone else. I want to be treated just like anyone else. But equality is not equity. And I think when you when you when you shy away from your identity, you kind of hide a big part of you. And I think during this, you know, I want to call it racial reckoning. I just think that. You know, for a long time, it's been there. It just hasn't hasn't festered to the top, right? So, you know, the, the absence of conflict is not the presence of peace, right? And so, right now is where we're, we're talking more about it, but it's not as if it wasn't there. We just you're just seeing it now, y'all. Like you are just seeing the video, but we've been telling you for a while, like that this hasn't been hasn't been good for us. And look, you and I are, are both from New York City, like. I, you know, stopping Frisk was a real thing for us. We didn't even, we weren't even doing anything, right? Like we were just walking or, or hanging out in the block with our with our friends, and and we were being stopped. And so, I think, in, and I talk about that now. Before it was like, hey, I, you know, like whatever that happened, but that was that's just what happens in in New York. That is not normal, and we need to name it and we need to talk about it, um, and to realize it's also not your fault. Oh, maybe I, you know, I was, back in the day, you wear your do rag and you wear your your paper, your parachute goes right, like, and your big shirts. That is not a justification to stop me. Um, and so it, it is a lot about that. It's having self-compassion, is leaning into your identity. Um, it is being more willing to, to discuss these issues. And it's also being more willing to make people dis uncomfortable. Because when you do talk about these things, you know, people are uncomfortable. Um, especially folks who grow up their whole lives thinking that colorblindness is appropriate, which in reality is probably erasing people's, you know, your ability to see people and their, and their fullness. So it's a long way of saying that I think this moment has allowed us the space to finally talk about us and we shouldn't shy away from it. In that context, talk a little bit about what it means to be an equity leader today. It depends on where you, it depends on where you, where you sit. I think for, for me, what it means is, you know, we are constantly 
in this conversation about distribution of resources in the state on the state level, right? So be, I used to be a college counselor. It means equity means something different. I was still a college counselor versus deputy secretary. Um, so right now it's ask for me again for me it's asking a question. So when we think about testing and testing resources, um, ensuring the equitable distribution of testing, especially for communities that that lack the resources to be able to access um, access the means of the means, right? So making sure that we're doing testing, we're taking testing to people. We are eliminating transportation as a barrier to testing. That we are in conversations with our finance team to ensure that costs is not a barrier to testing. It's working with our food producers um, and our uh, agriculture, uh, agriculture sector so that we are getting to the most vulnerable people, right? So not even the undocumented, now you have like H1B, right? All the, all the different visa types. And so same thing with vaccinations right now. It is, you can easily vaccinate people if you just go to one place um, where there's a number, there's a lot of resource and no hesitancy. But those are not necessarily the folks who are uh, disproportionately impacted by this virus. And so you have to go to where you have to talk to people about the, the need to take the vaccine and you have to make sure that this limited resource is being equitably distributed, although you will take some heat from the folks who want it, who have the resource, who are ready to take it, right? So that's, and it sounds like, oh, that's not a big battle, but it really is, right? Because it is hand-to-hand combat sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is a challenge and it slows up the process, right? Like, again, like equity is hard. It is not easy. And it's time consuming because you have to ask more questions when you have an equity framework than when you just say, hey, let's just get this out. Mm. And those are, and then you get dinged for not being fast enough. And you gotta be willing to say why, and you gotta be willing to take that political heat. So so if you're up for it, I wanna ask you some short short answer questions. These are gonna be a minute or, or less and they'll come kind of fast. All right. Um, if you could snap your fingers, to make one change for kids and communities today, what would that be? Uh, resources, mental health resources, as well as financial resources. What is the one tool, skill, or resource, maybe a life-changing book or a podcast that you just wish every leader you know, uh, know about and use? Gosh, that's a tough one. Born a Crime by uh, Trevor Noah. Yeah. Ah, so good. What is a, what's a piece of advice you would give to your 23 year old self? Go for it. And then these are going to be three second answers. So when you feel overwhelmed or lost, what helps you refocus? Oh, my mom. And it's just like calling her and she, you know, she's a, she's a lunch lady now. Uh, sure. That's not the right phrase for it, but you know, I just know so much about cold and hot lunches. <laughs> And like, she just takes me completely away with, from whatever is going on. And she, I just love getting into her world and, and see, and like just hearing the pride and, and, and the work that she does and how far she's come to, to be in that position. So my mom. I love that. What's one thing about the next generation of leaders that excites you for the future and why? I think they're less constrained. I think they understand, they are less willing to take the structures as they are. Um, and they're much more willing to, to kind of ask the question and, and not be accepting of the answer if it's unsatisfactory. Mm. 
And in the audience right now is a young man, young woman sitting, listening and saying, I'm just about to go to college or I just got out of college or I'm just in my first job and I want to be a deputy secretary one day or I want to make big change or just be a leader. What do you advise them? There's no plan. There's no like perfect, you know, there's no perfect linear approach to any of this kind of stuff. Um, there's a good commencement speech that I that I like from Steve Jobs. I think he it was at Stanford, and he's talking about connecting the dots, and that the dots don't don't connect moving forward. They make sense once you look backwards, um, and I, I think that really does make sense. I wouldn't I didn't think I was going to be in this position, nor that I plan to be in this position, and so it is about like acquiring skills along the way making yourself available to opportunities. And then, um, again, it doesn't just make sense all of a sudden, but things manifest themselves over over time. And I didn't know that as, as a young man. I think it was more like I had to plan every step, but that doesn't, it doesn't really, doesn't really work out that way. Deputy Secretary, thank you. Gracias por estar aquí. Thank you for being with us. I really appreciate your generosity of time, of spirit, of wisdom. It's so good to watch you lead. <laughs> well, hey, let's remember, I, th- I think I remember that first time we met, um, and it was a CACI um, workshop. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you were you were helping us with our resume, right? Because that's another thing. When it comes to different environments, you're in, they speak a different language. So you help translate our experiences into into the D.C. The DC uh, milieu. Um, and we also talked about trust that day. And that was part of your your conversation. And so, you know, we've come a long way. I think those lessons are still are still with me. The need to be a translator, um, the need to lead with humility, but also to to trust your your fellow person. And so I am very grateful for, for your friendship throughout the years. I'm, I'm looking forward to, to continuing that friendship and and know that I'm I'm here for whatever you need. Same here. Thank you so much. All right, brother Quiazin. Igual. I gotta say, Cindy, I'm so glad that we have people like Marvin Figueroa working in the new administration. Me too. And I was personally struck by his humility, which I think is a strong characteristic of a good leader. Yeah, I think it is super important for leaders to be able to admit when they don't know something and to have the trust and confidence to listen to the people around them who do. Good leadership is about building strong teams. Absolutely. And I think it was significant how Marvin used his own life as an example when he talked about growing up as an immigrant, being on housing vouchers, SNAP, Medicare, going to a Title I school, and being on Pell Grants. It's because of all of these social services that he was able to make it to where he is today. That gives me so much hope for our future, for all the students that we're fighting for. It's not in vain. He shows us that there's possibility that students growing up like him will someday be working in the highest positions in our government, making changes for even more kids. Totally. And Marvin also mentioned that commencement speech given by Steve Jobs. I've seen it before, and if you haven't, then you really should give it a listen. I'll put the video up in the show notes. Awesome. Marvin also mentioned two books, The 10X Rule by Grant Cardone and Born a Crime by Trevor Noah. Can you put those links to those up there too? Of course. And also the full episode transcript? Of course. For all you listeners out there, the show notes for each episode can be found at educationalequity.org slash leaders table. 
If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts from so that you don't miss out when new episodes are released. And while you're there, please give us a review. You can also write to us at leaderstable at educationalequity.org. We'd love to hear from you. Our show is hosted by Jason Lorenz, myself, Cindy Centeno, and me, Taylor Stewart. The episode is edited by Nolan Peters and written and produced by Graham Gordon. Thanks for pulling up a seat at the leader's table. Be well, stay safe out there, and until next time. Hey, everyone. I'm Atira Griffin, and I'm here to talk to you about Lee's virtual course called Exploring Your Leadership with Lee. Exploring Your Leadership with Lee is designed exclusively for Lee members like you to help you reflect on the unique needs of your community and figure out how your own leadership abilities could best be used. This course takes anywhere from three to six hours to complete, and it's totally self-guided and self-paced. You'll walk away with a clearer vision of equity and a deeper understanding of the pathways through which leaders can support their communities and make an impact. If you're a Lee member and the Exploring Your Leadership with Lee course piques your interest, please log in at educationalequity.org. Click the virtual content link on the right of your member homepage, and then select the Exploring Your Leadership with Lee course to begin. This course is for all Lee members with all levels of experience. It's totally free, and best of all, it is designed to fit into your busy life. Once again, log in at educationalequity.org and click virtual content on the right to find the Exploring Your Leadership with Lee link. We look forward to helping you discover the next steps in your leadership journey.